Today we begin a series uh, for 12 weeks on the greatest sermon ever preached. So preachers feel some pressure when they put sermons together on this, uh, on this sermon. It's the so-called Sermon on the Mount, and it got its name because it's a sermon Jesus gave on a mountain, uh, one of the beautiful rolling hills of Galilee. It is just 2,000 words long, a little bit more in the English, a little bit less in the original Greek, but about 2,000 words, and yet it contains virtually all of the most recognizable sayings of Jesus. Our Father in heaven, Sermon on the Mount. Do to others as you would have them do to you, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, do not judge lest you be judged. Uh, love your enemies. Uh, take the log out of your own eye. And on and on, all these famous sayings from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it takes just 15 minutes to read out the entire Sermon on the Mount. And some think that's a good guide for how long sermons should be. But... It may seem a little ironic that I'm going to spend 20 minutes tonight just on one word of the Sermon on the Mount, the first word. In fact, the first word of each of the first nine paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount, the word makarios, blessed. Or in some dictionaries, that if you take your ancient Greek dictionary off the shelf that you have at home, uh, open up to uh, Makarios, you'll see that the headline translation is happy. And blessed is always there, but happy is usually the headline definition. Happy, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy, blessed are those who mourn. Happy, blessed are the meek, and so on. Now, as you can see, uh, I've called this entire series Blessed, but I wanted this first sermon in the series to be called The Pursuit of Happiness. The reason for this is I genuinely believe that the word blessed, the way it's used by contemporary Christians, needs to be adjusted a little bit in our minds in the direction of happy. And I certainly believe that the English word happiness, as it's used in the world, could be enhanced by a little bit more reflection on the deeper notion of blessed. Blessed and happy are not exactly the same idea, but for the Christian they can be. So I want to begin with a bit of a reflection on the pursuit of happiness that is so prevalent in our culture. It seems to me, and you may disagree, that at the very heart of our culture is an unhappy paradox. We are, without doubt, the healthiest, wealthiest society in all of human history. Things you might have thought would bring happiness, right? And yet we are arguably the least satisfied, the least content culture in world history. Uh, we know that rates of mental illness in Australia are on the rise. And it's not just because of better diagnostic tools. We also know 
that suicide is now the leading cause of death among Australians aged 15 to 44. Soak that up. Indeed, weirdly, the highest suicide rate is amongst 84-year-olds. So it isn't just a young thing. We live in a very weird time. Health and wealth are key goals of our culture and therefore of our governments. It's all they talk about, health and wealth. Things you might have thought would bring happiness, but we know beyond doubting it doesn't satisfy. Study after study demonstrates that material flourishing offers almost no lasting happiness. We get an initial bump, of course, from a pay rise. If you get a new car or a new clothes, you get a little bit of a bump, but what happens invariably is we adapt to the bump and want more, more. The Wall Street Journal published a review of the happiness research of recent years and quoted Sonia Libomirsky, who's the professor of psychology at the University of California. Listen to what she said. Human beings are remarkably good at getting used to changes in their lives, especially positive changes. If you have a rise in income, it gives you a boost, but then your aspirations rise too. Maybe you buy a bigger home in a new neighborhood, and so your neighbors are richer, and you start wanting even more. You've stepped on to the hedonic treadmill. Trying to prevent that or slow it down is really a challenge, she says. Famously, Dan Gilbert, the professor of psychology at Harvard University, quipped 90% of the happiness derived from wealth is purchased with the first 10% of our wealth. Now, I'm not sure that was meant as a scientific statement. I think he was just trying to get an audience's attention once. But, but think about it. It does unpack what Dan Gilbert and others have been pursuing for years now. The research is really clear. Once you have purchased clothing, shelter, and food, the excess money you have beyond that that you spend on yourself purchases next to no lasting happiness. They'll admit that you get happiness once you have purchased clothes, uh, shelter, and food, because these are vitals, but, but your dollars spent beyond that by almost no lasting happiness. We get a bump, and it's back to the baseline. Now, Libomirsky and Gilbert are leaders in a movement known as the positive psychology movement. Positive psychology is a branch of psychology um, that focuses more on enhancing the healthy than um, mending the ill. And it's, it's a really significant area of psychology over the last 40 years. And one of the fathers of positive psychology is Martin Seligman, who's professor of psychology at the University of, University of Pennsylvania. And um, you can find this for yourself. He gave a very uh, well-known TED talk. And although it's within the constraints of the 18 minutes that TED talks give you, um, he tries in that 18 minutes to outline the last 40 years of positive psychology research. 
and maybe he's making it more simple than the data you know, would suggest, but I trust him when he says that basically the data has found there are three levels of happiness, and they need to be almost studied differently. The first level is pleasure. Um, we are creatures that like pleasure. Um, uh, we do enjoy a bottle of wine, um, those who are old enough, uh, a holiday, a birthday party, and so on. Um, these, these pleasures are not lasting, but they're measurable. People who have regular experiences of pleasure do have slightly elevated levels of happiness. Uh, by the way, happiness in all of this literature is defined principally as a sense of well-being or contentment about your state of affairs. And pleasure, so long as you have repeated pleasure, can give you slightly elevated levels of overall contentment. But they say there's a second level of happiness, which Seligman calls flow. Flow is not so much pleasure as things going pretty well in your life. It's when you have a job you love that you're good at, when you have general physical health, when you have friends and family where the relationships are basically functional. People who have flow in their lives have even higher levels of happiness than those who have lots of experiences of pleasure. But here's the curious thing. Seligman says the research has made pretty clear that the third and highest level of happiness is what he calls meaning. People who genuinely feel they are connected to some higher purpose in the world tend to score highest in all of the happiness measures. And this is true even when they don't have much pleasure or flow in their lives. It's like meaning is the jackpot of happiness. When you feel connected to reality, you are more likely to be genuinely content, uh, happy uh, with your life. Now, I've, I've read this uh, positive psychology research for years now, and I love it, but it's always made me chuckle. I mean, no disrespect for those who are into it academically, but the reason I chuckle is the conclusion of this sort of 40 years of rigorous research is the conclusion that was reached 2,300 years ago by Aristotle, the famous Greek pagan philosopher. Seriously, exactly the same conclusion. Aristotle wrote a whole book uh, on the pursuit of happiness, the Nicomachean Ethics. And um, he observes that we are happiness-seeking creatures, okay? There's no uh, rocket science there. His word for happy, by the way, was eudaimon, which is a dictionary synonym of makarios. Um, it means sort of well-being, blissfulness. And the interesting thing about Aristotle is that he said, human beings are rational animals. They're not just walking stomachs or sex organs. And a rational animal could never be fully satisfied in life by mere pleasure. A rational animal will always be seeking what is highest, what is most meaningful. And he basically argued that a rational creature will only be happy when it feels connected to the rationale of the world. 
A rational creature will only feel happy when it feels connected to the rationale of the world. In other words, Aristotle said, meaning is the key to happiness. And of course, this is why Aristotle was so into philosophy. What's philosophy? Philos, Sophia, means the love of wisdom. And wisdom for Aristotle was two things. A knowledge of what is most real in the universe and a knowledge of how to live in accordance with it. The two words he coined, which are still the words of standard philosophy today, are metaphysics and ethics. Metaphysics, the study of what is highest in the world, and ethics, the study of how to live in the light of or in tune with what is highest. So for Aristotle, life is about knowing ultimate reality, which this Greek philosopher actually thought was God, by the way, and knowing how to live in sync with reality, which for Aristotle boiled down to a life of justice. Pretty interesting from a pagan philosopher just sitting around in Athens working out what is the meaning of life. He argues that if you participate in the rationale of the world, you will be happy, regardless of whether you experience much pleasure or flow. And what I find funny is that it's exactly positive psychology just 2,300 years early. And the reason I'm laying all of this out is that the Bible comes to the same conclusion even earlier than Aristotle. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible says, The truly happy person is the one who knows ultimate reality and lives in accordance with it. It's metaphysics and ethics. If you know the rationale of creation and live in tune with it, you will be happy. And the biblical word for this happy match between knowing reality and living by reality is the word makarios, blessed. The opening word of the Sermon on the Mount. And although we're going to take each paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount uh, in succession and in detail over the next 11 weeks, I just felt it was so important to wind back to understand the, the first word of the first nine paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got to understand blessed Otherwise, the whole thing won't make sense. So, in order to understand Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to put on our Old Testament lenses. As so often is the case, you don't get Jesus unless you're attuned to the Old Testament background. And here is a classic case, because long before Aristotle, long before Aristotle, the Old Testament described the intimate logical connection between metaphysics ethics, and the blessed life. Or if you prefer it more simply, ultimate reality, how to live in accordance with it, resulting in true happiness. And one great passage to see this play out is our Old Testament reading tonight. Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is an ode to wisdom. It's a poem. It's full of metaphor. 
It's a beautiful ode to wisdom that predates Aristotle. And in the ode, um, wisdom is personified as a woman. More than that, she's personified as God's wife. Now, it's a metaphor, but it's a pretty risky one, right? And the thing is, what this passage basically says, as wisdom speaks, she says, I am the foundation of the world. I am the way to live your life, and I'm the path to blessedness. I'm the structure of the world, the way to live your life, and the path to blessedness. Hold that in mind as I read this truncated version of Proverbs 8. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I, wisdom, yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice. I was there when the Lord set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon of the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me. Watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway, for those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. Now you can see how on the one hand, wisdom is about ethics, about how to live, right? So wisdom is about the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. And so wisdom at the end of the ode says, listen to me, keep my ways. So on the one hand, wisdom is about how you live. But here's the thing. And although tonight is sort of slightly nerdy, the payoff, I think, is immense. Wisdom is not just about ethics. Wisdom is about metaphysics. Because what wisdom says is, I was there at the founding of the world. I am built into the structure of the world. And so she says, I was there when the Lord set the heavens in place. And then there's all that stuff about how he set this up, set this up. And then she says, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. This is picking up a theme we find throughout the Old Testament that wisdom is the very structure of creation. So in Proverbs 3.19 we read, by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. We might think by power. No, no, no. The biblical idea is by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. And that very sentence, by wisdom the Lord laid the foundations of the earth, is repeated in Jeremiah 10, 12, Jeremiah 51, 15, and Psalm 104, verse 24. In other words, it's a thing. It's a thing. Wisdom is what's built into the structure of the world. Here is one of the most important biblical concepts to get our heads and hearts around. When you obey God's wisdom, you are participating in the rationale of the world. Now, we touched on this when I did the Spectator's Guide to Jesus series. I don't expect you to remember, but in my sermon on the love command that Jesus gave, I said the love command is not just an arbitrary command, you know, 
Jesus said you've got to love because it's just a nice thing he wanted you to do. No, no, no. You may remember I said that the love command is the key to an authentic life because Jesus taught the most true thing in the universe is God's love. Therefore, if you want an authentic life, you've got to be animated by the truest thing in the universe. And that truest thing is love. Love is not an arbitrary duty. It is a participation in reality. Now, that's what I said about the love command, and we'll see that in the Sermon on the Mount as it plays out. But it's the same concept here, but in different words. Let me put it in a sentence for you. God's wisdom is his genius, built into the fabric of the world and expressed in his commands for life. This is such a profound uh, thought that I'm worried I'm about to trivialise it by giving you an analogy. Ikea. Ikea. And not just any Ikea item, the mighty Leotorp, which is apparently the most sophisticated, uh, at least one of, in the top five, most sophisticated items Ikea has produced. Now think about the mighty Leotorp. The wisdom of Ikea is built into the product. Yes, of course. But here's the thing. The wisdom of Ikea is also built into the instruction manual that comes with it. It's the same wisdom. It's the genius of Ikea in the product that structures the product. But then to the degree that you need to know, there's an instruction manual where that same wisdom is laid out for you in a series of instructions. The instructions are not arbitrary commands. They're the wisdom in the product. Now, this is so important to understand in terms of its analogy to God. Now, you may choose, as you build something this complicated from Ikea, freedom, or what you think is freedom. I choose to skip over steps three to five Just go straight to six. I'm telling you, by the time you get to step 13, you'll be undoing everything and going back to two. In fact, I've had some really delightful stories today as I've been telling this, mainly from the 10 o'clockers who are into Ikea uh, in a big way, uh, of people who seriously bought big things and missed a screw somewhere, you know, around step five. And when they got to, to step 105, Realize that actually you absolutely need that. (laughs) They had to undo the whole thing. My, My point is, the commandments of Ikea aren't arbitrary duties. They are wisdom. In fact, it's the same wisdom that produced the product. It's participating in the mind of the maker, actually. Can you see where I'm going here? The logical result of following the wisdom of the maker is blessing. And this is why Proverbs 8 ends with blessing. Having said that wisdom is the structure of creation, metaphysics, the way to live your life, ethics, it then says, blessed are those who keep my ways. Blessed are those who listen to me. Sounds a little bit like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, don't you think? Blessed are those who. Blessed are those who. This blessing 
is not just an arbitrary reward for good behavior. It's not like the Lord stands back and goes, oh, he did a nice thing that I asked. I'm going to bless that person. That's not what this is about. The blessing of obeying God's commandments is more like the blessing of having the author of a book guide you through the reading of the book. Or the playwright guiding you through the acting out of a play. Or if you prefer, it's the blessing of following the maker's instructions. Obeying God is participating in the inner logic of the world. And the Sermon on the Mount reflects this same idea. The Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to next week and for the next 11, is about blessing through wisdom. Which is why I've spent so much time on this blessing and wisdom business. The Sermon on the Mount begins with nine statements of blessing. But its last paragraph is about wisdom. And this isn't accidental. If you have Matthew open and go to the very last paragraph of this famous sermon, as Jesus brings it all home, he talks about wisdom. Matthew 7, 24 to 26. Matthew 7, 24 to 26. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, right? Here's the conclusion. Everyone who's heard me say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Judge not, lest you be judged. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. All of that stuff. Now he says, Blessed are those who hear my words and put them into practice. That person is like what? A wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, these words are a foundation for your life. Not in the arbitrary sense that if you do these things, God will bless you, reward you, give you a prize for good behavior. No. But in the deep structural sense that the Sermon on the Mount is God's very wisdom. His genius that is built into the fabric of the world and expressed in these commandments. And so we are blessed when we follow the Sermon on the Mount in the same way that we are blessed when we follow the manufacturer's instructions, in the same way that we are blessed if we build a house on the only sure ground in town. Jesus doesn't promise pleasure or even flow. In fact, 
we're going to discover in the Sermon on the Mount, he warns against chasing pleasure. And he predicts that you're going to get some unflow, otherwise known as persecution. And this final analogy makes clear that it's not all flow. I mean, your house is on the foundation, but there are waves and there are, there's wind and there's rain. But the thing is, you're stable, you're secure on these words. The Sermon on the Mount does promise happiness in the true sense. What Martin Seligman calls meaning, what Aristotle called eudaimon, what the Bible calls makarios, blessed. Participating in the very rationale of God's world. What could be more fulfilling than that? Let's pray. Our Lord, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts open to your word. Oh, Father, our culture is so messed up chasing after the things that unravel our own souls. We beg you to forgive our nation, forgive us for participating in so many things that are unreal and shallow. We thank you for your grace. We praise you for your wisdom and ask that you help us, Lord. Participate in your genius by helping us, Lord, to understand these words of the Sermon on the Mount and to put them into practice that we might build our house on the rock, come what may. For we ask it in the name of wisdom itself, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.